the idea that anybody would see me as a genocide denier, which is what many Bosnian Muslims accuse me of, it was just a, a shock. It was just not what I expected. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil. Многое принято решение по проведении специальной военной операции. Across Paris, other attackers detonate their suicide vests. Bombs explode throughout London. It was an act of pure evil. Hello and welcome to Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, a podcast series on perpetrators of mass atrocities. I'm Nicola Kwaadvlieg, and as always, I'm joined by Alet Smeulers, professor at the University of Groningen, specialized in perpetrators. And today we're joined by Jessica Stern, She's a research professor at Boston University and an expert on terrorism. She interviewed many terrorists and served on former President Bill Clinton's National Security Council staff. She's a renowned expert on terrorism, but has also received criticism on her book on Radovan Karacic. We will discuss her work, what motivates her, what she has learned about perpetrators, but also what she thinks of the criticism. First of all, Jessica, thank you very much for joining us from the United States. And let me start off with the very first question. Where does your fascination with perpetrators come from? I was a doctoral student many years ago at Kennedy School at Harvard. And I heard one lecture. It was a, a man named Brian Jenkins, who's really beloved in my field. We call it terrorism studies. And I was completely fascinated. And the day I heard that lecture changed my life. I love to say that when I'm with him. <laughs> it always embarrasses him. But I, I think it's really important for students to realize that it might just happen that they hear one lecture and that lecture could actually change their life. Um, and it's also important for professors to realize how how we can influence our students. And what about the lecture was so inspiring to you? I, I, I can't even, I honestly, I don't remember the details of the lecture. It was about terrorism with chemical weapons. And I, my training is actually initially in chemistry. Um, and I was working on chemical weapons, control of chemical weapons. That was my dissertation topic until that day. And I had never really thought about the use of these weapons by non-state actors. And I, I realize now, many, many years later, that what drew me to this topic more than anything, I think, is that I myself had been a victim of violent crime as a child, I was raped at gunpoint at age 15. And I, I do think that I was spending a lot of my time trying to figure out why people do terrible things. But it was many years before I realized that the, the real source of my fascination was my own biography, my own experience. And I, I think that happens with a lot of us that 
it may take us a while to realize why we do what we do professionally. It seems like it's a purely professional decision, but it may in fact be more psychological than, than is obvious in the moment. How was it for you to realize that your fascination with perpetrators had such a personal cause? Well, frankly, it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> you know, I, I thought of myself as very objective and professional. And in the beginning of my career, I, I worked on weapon systems that terrorists might be drawn to. It, initially, chemical weapons. And then I, I took a postdoc at Livermore National Laboratory where I had to expand into political developments that might put nuclear weapons at risk. This was at the end of the Soviet Union. But subsequently, I just began to follow my curiosity. I was not trained to work on the psychology of perpetrators, but I just decided I, I wanted to learn about that. And the data at that time were very, very bad. Um, the only data available to us about terrorist perpetrators were put out by the State Department, the U.S. State Department. And there was no way to elicit anything about terrorist motivations, what motivated the individual terrorists. The data were all focused on attacks and the identity of the perpetrator in terms of purported ideology, stated ideology, but no one had actually incorporated what the perpetrator said about why he or she chose to carry out acts of terrorism. And I started interviewing, go, seeking out terrorists myself, which was not, it was not viewed <laughs> as a serious thing to do. It was, I, it was called journalistic at the time, but the, the data available to us were so bad that I, I felt that was the only way to learn anything about motivations. And my first terrorists were American neo-Nazis. Those are the ones I initially started interviewing. And from there, I, I got very interested in what was happening in Pakistan and Afghanistan. I spent time there, quite a bit of time there. I went to Indonesia. I went to Lebanon. I went to Israel, Palestine. Um, so I, I learned quite a bit about different types of perpetrators from what they said about themselves. I mean, obviously, we don't necessarily know why we do what we do and neither do terrorists. So, you know, th this is what they said was the reason why they do what they do. Um, it, it, it's much better to spend a lot of time with the perpetrator if you want to get to the bottom. I have a question because what period of time was this? Because, of course, after 9-11 in 2001, many more people got interested in terrorism, but you're sometimes qualified as the first terrorist expert well before 9-11. Can, can you give us a period of time when you started doing this type of research? Yes, I started doing this type of research in the late 1980s, and I started interviewing terrorists, I would say in the early 90s. Um, 
honestly, I would not be able to do what I did after 9-11. I stopped going to Pakistan. I actually, some of the extremists that I talked to there told me that they were Al-Qaeda when they were in Afghanistan. They were Harkat al-Mujahideen when they were in Pakistan. But somehow I I didn't want to believe I was talking to Al-Qaeda. But I was. You know, in retrospect, what I did was pretty foolish. But at that time, they were very, very curious about someone like me. I was very curious about them. They were curious about me. And I think curiosity, their curiosity about me is what kept me alive. My curiosity about them was what kept me going. But you know, I was very young when I look back and I think what I did, my God, I just can't believe how how foolish that was. And, you know, I survived. So it it's okay. <laughs> but it was, I can't imagine watching somebody else do what I did. Were you ever in real danger in hindsight? It's hard for me to answer that question. I certainly was around people with a lot of weaponry. I think they saw me as a bit stupid and unthreatening because I'm a woman and that I believe kept me safe relatively safe but I did exactly what Daniel Pearl did the Wall Street Journal reporter who was murdered and obviously he, he didn't survive you know I I do think that my vulnerability in many ways, was a form of security in a male chauvinist society, male, mostly male chauvinist societies. What are some of the most memorable moments from all of your interviews? I would say perhaps the most memorable moment is when I was out at camp that Lushkari Taiba was running. And Ultimately, they suggested that perhaps I would find a husband there. I just found this very funny. But that's the kind of thing that would happen. I I prefer interviews that are long. Um, and Professor Smullers probably feels the same way. I don't know. But it makes a huge difference if you can get through the initial discussion about what the the terrorist thinks, you know, how, how they like to advertise themselves and get to more personal issues that are less threatening. And also there's less of an incentive to lie. There, there were a number of times where I was recruited. Um, I was a, a young, foolish, Jewish American. And I often got recruited to jihadi groups <laughs> or encouraged to convert to Islam at a minimum. <laughs> so that That's what I would say was the most interesting thing that would happen. When you talked to them, did you feel they were telling you the truth because they were intrigued about you? Or did you feel they were circumventing the truth? Both. Especially in the beginning of an interview, I felt that I was hearing a lot of lies. I mean, I remember 
one interview with Harkat al-Mujahideen, uh, which took me years, by the way, to secure. This is a group very close to al-Qaeda, where they started out saying that they didn't have training camps in Afghanistan, that they weren't involved in terrorism. I, I felt like they almost had a script that they were following. And it was easy for me to see that they were lying. But where I felt I got somewhere was when the the leader told me that he had just married for a second time. And I asked him quite a bit about his wife. And then I asked if I could meet his wife. And I, he was so unprepared for that question that he said yes. And as a result of that, I got to see his home, which I saw that he was a very, very wealthy man. And he was, I realized, getting very rich off the so-called jihad uh, at the expense of young men. And that was something that it was very important for me to see. I'm sure there are times when they lied to me and I didn't know they lied to me, but I tried to focus on questions where there was less of an incentive to lie. And then they also ended up telling me things like where they got weapons that was a kind of question that until trust was established, I would not ask. Because part of what I was trying to do was not look like I was an intelligence operative. I tried to avoid questions that might raise that question in their mind was, uh, of course, no intelligence operative would be as foolish as I was. But nonetheless, I, I realized that was a risk. The most important risk for me was the possibility that they would think in Pakistan that I was an intelligence operative for India. That was my main concern. Are there, in hindsight, any questions that you haven't asked terrorists that you wish you had asked? N- not really. I'm, I'm, I've always been particularly interested in the personal motivation of the individual. And eventually, I actually studied psychoanalysis. I, stud- I did it in the same way that of a psychiatrist would do. I I took that training, even though I'm not a clinician, because I just wanted to learn something about what was happening in the room between the extremists and me. Basically, I learned a language for what was happening. I learned that I was not perceiving my own fear appropriately. I was perceiving my fear as curiosity, and I was quite dissociated, but I was using my dissociation productively. So that's the main thing I learned in studying psychoanalysis. It it wasn't, I don't think it changed the nature of how I interview, but I learned a little bit more about what was happening in the room. I in retrospect, I realized that my own terror in some of these situations where I was surrounded by men with guns was 
making me go into this dissociated state um, that actually was useful to me. And so when I see students who want to learn how to do what I did, it's that's not something a person can learn in school. And it's not a healthy or safe thing to do. But I believe that's what was going on for me. What did you learn about their motives? What were their main driving forces? I think there's a big difference between the kind of person who becomes a terrorist in a war zone and the kind of person who becomes a terrorist in the West. In a war zone, first of all, there's often a very serious grievance, and also there may be even financial rewards for joining a terrorist organization. There may be essentially a form of health insurance, life insurance. Terrorism can be like other types of jobs in a war zone or very much like joining a military. Whereas in the West, I think there are often more personal push factors. I don't mean that there aren't personal push factors for Paris in a war zone. There are also personable, personal factors. Um, the witnessing of some terrible act of violence in one's own family, for example. But what we see in the West, and I'm still doing this research, although mostly looking at former extremists who are coming out of prison or who some, in some cases are in prison, the personal story is often very powerful. In our podcast series, we have often discussed whether perpetrators are normal people, hence also the title of our of our podcast. Would you say that the people you've met are quote-unquote normal people like you and me? Yes, uh, to to a large extent, yes. The work I'm doing now, we're, we're looking, in fact, we're right now coding a large data set of interventions with extremists. It's a data set collected by an organization called Parents for Peace, where parents are able to call to get help when their kid has joined an extremist group, such as a neo-Nazi group or a jihadi group, or is just attracted to a movement. And in, in that data set, we were asked to look for trauma history, what is called adverse childhood experiences, and also autism. And in that data set, in the United States right now, the kind of person who is drawn to neo-Nazi movements, I can say, does appear to have more adverse childhood experiences than the typical person in the United States. And also, it looks like there's an over-representation of people who are diagnosed with autism. I do want to say that the vast majority of people who are traumatized or have been diagnosed as being on the spectrum. Obviously, the vast majority are not extremists, nonviolent. But when we look at extremists, we do see for this particular type of extremist an overrepresentation, somewhat higher than we would find in the general population. 
of traumatized people, uh, for example. But we're not seeing a lot of psychosis in the data set. And I think that's, I assume that what you mean when you ask about, are these people normal? Are they psychotic? Are they sociopathic? I'm, I'm sure that there are such people in the universe of Paris, but we're not seeing that in the data set I'm looking at now. And I have not personally seen a lot of that in my interviews. I'm not trained to diagnose, but I didn't feel that I was in, for the most part, I didn't feel I was in with people who weren't normal. That's interesting. And we've talked about terrorists so far, because that's also your expertise. But at some point, you decided to interview Radovan Karacic, who wouldn't be described as a terrorist, would he? Well, it depends how we define terrorism. And it also depends on how, you know, was this, he was the president of a Serb entity within Bosnia. So was he really the president of a country? Not exactly. So, you know, how do we distinguish terrorism from terrorists from war criminals? We usually say that the terrorist is a non-state actor and the war criminal is a state actor. I don't know exactly how to categorize him. Um, he was being tried as a war criminal. You know, the, the, the distinction is not that big in my mind. Also not that important when you analyze such a person. Right. So could you explain in a little bit more detail what Karachitz did? He was involved in overseeing a genocide in Bosnia. He is a psychiatrist, a very, very bright, charismatic psychiatrist who was able to organize terrible atrocities against Bosnian Muslims by both capitalizing on their fear and strengthening their fear. And that is what we often see with terrorist leaders. A terrorist leader benefits from the fear of followers and sympathizers. And if he, he can strengthen that, that makes for a very effective leader. Karadzic was very good at that. And you wanted to interview him. Why did he interest you? I had started interviewing perpetrators in prison and why in the universe of perpetrators in prison did I end did I settle on him it's I think he was the biggest challenge he is incredibly manipulative and incredibly complicated And I often felt that all the years of interviewing terrorists over many years were almost in preparation for interviewing this guy who was the most clever at attempting to manipulate me. He was constantly trying to demonstrate uh, some kind of connection with me when he realized that I was Jewish. He wanted to show that he is pro-Jew 
<laughs> he was delighted to find when we had similar interests, or if there was any overlap in our interests in literature, in music, in anything. When he was in hiding, he worked as an energy worker. He was essentially a Reiki practitioner. That that that's the term that we would use in the United States, but he called it bioenergetic healing. I mean, I guess there's slight differences. He tried, I believe he was trying to scare me when he demonstrated that on me. Fortunately, I had some experience with it and I knew that the heat he was able to generate, I'd experienced that before. Otherwise, I would have been absolutely petrified. And in fact, I was petrified. I, I was petrified pretty much the whole time I was talking to him. Because what exactly happened in that encounter where he practiced Reiki on you? He stood behind me and put his hands by my head without touching me. But even so, to have a infamous war criminal that close <laughs> to one's neck was pretty frightening. But all that time going into a dissociative state I was able to stand it, even though it was it was scary. I mean, I was able to, you know, I the, the, what often happens with me in this, in this situation is I'm sort of I am not afraid. I am deliberately telling myself I am not petrified that this person is going to kill me, and I could also tell myself rationally that it was very unlikely he was going to kill me. But one does have that kind of thought whether the person you're talking to has a weapon or is surrounded by guards with weapons, or in this case, someone who could easily strangle me. One of the things I do in my writing is I try, rather than explaining I'm in a dissociated state, I try to have the reader have the same experience. And so I say, I am not afraid. I bring the reader along through my experience. And I think for some readers, that works really well. I mean, I've received many letters thanking me for not so much exposing myself to physical danger, but to psychological and spiritual danger in order to elicit a reaction, an explanation, a demonstration that helps the reader, in this case, understand the powerful charisma of this, this man and how incredibly manipulative he was. Did you feel that at some point you got under, the, under his spell, his charismatic uh, spell, and almost kind of deliberately let yourself go into that state to understand this spell? I certainly went along with his story in the moment. You know, had you asked me, if, if you tapped me on the shoulder while I was listening to him tell some story and said, hey, are you believing him? I would have said no. But I was trying to go along to follow very closely his moral and psychological and strategic logic. That's how I, I think of 
what I'm doing. I'm trying not to allow myself to judge in the moment. I mean, it's a form of eliciting information. Again, as I said, if you tap me on the shoulder, you would be pulling me out of, it's almost like a trance state as I'm trying to almost become that person. I'm listening so closely. And I can only listen in that way. I, I think I'm a good listener. I'm fascinated by everybody. I, I'm fascinated by human beings' stories. But that kind of listening, I believe, comes out of fear, terror. And you can listen in that way when your life depends on it, when you have to, you're hypervigilant and inside the other person's worldview. I was wondering how ultimately what you see is the main driving force of, of Karacic, because I once went to one of his days in trial and went to the ICTY. And when you go on the, the public place where you can sit and watch a trial, you're actually very close to, to the perpetrators and the court. What struck me back then is I was the only one in the audience that day But the only one from in the courtroom who noticed me was Karacic. And he, of course, didn't know who I was. But he continuously tried to somehow get my attention. And he was continuously looking and almost as if he was trying to get my approval of what he was saying. So... I noticed him as very strongly being craving for my attention. And I was wondering if that is, you would consider that the main feature or whether you think he was also very strongly wanting to show his power over you during the interview? I think what you were noticing is his narcissism. And If I had to say in one word what motivated him personally, I would say it was narcissism. He is, I mean, I think it's narcissism the way we usually use the term. I, I tried to get a psychiatrist friend of mine to diagnose him. And... I could tell from our conversations that the psychiatrist would have called him a malignant narcissist. But I couldn't talk him into allowing me to quote him. But I, you know, the, the way we normally use that word, the way he was looking at you, trying to manipulate you, probably trying to mesmerize you, he was trying to get you on his side. It's amazing that he would immediately identify you as someone he wanted to stare down. He's very clever, and he he must have realized that you were someone worth recruiting, even though you didn't say, hi, I'm a professor who works on perpetrators. He somehow intuited that you were worth focusing on. Do you ever still think about him? No, not no. I mean, I I was quite haunted during the the years that I was working on talking to him. 
as often happens, it's excruciatingly painful for me to go back and look at my notes. There's something about the disjuncture between the state I'm in when I'm actually petrified, but don't perceive it as fear and my normal life. And that was very, very hard for me. When the book was done, he was furious with me. And he wanted to contact me, but his lawyer told him he had to leave me alone. Because by that time, I had received a very, very painful reaction from the Bosnian Muslim community, which I did not anticipate. And I was just completely overwhelmed. My colleagues couldn't understand why when I was showered with thousands of tweets, some of them violent, but all of them expressing tremendous pain, why I didn't take advantage of that moment uh, on the theory that all publicity is good publicity. And the reason I didn't is because I, I was so taken aback, so surprised, so shocked, uh, and, and felt terrible pain. Uh, I am myself a child of a Holocaust survivor, and the idea that anybody would see me as a genocide denier, which is what many Bosnian Muslims accuse me of, it was just a, a shock. It was just not what I expected. So Karadzic's attorney told him he, he should leave me alone, that I was already <laughs> receiving enough criticism I didn't need to hear from him on top of everyone else. Yeah, ju because just to be completely clear, you're never denying the genocide that has taken place. No, in fact, the subtitle of the book mentions architect of genocide. Why do you think the Bosnian Muslim population is so mad at you then? You know, I, my style of writing, you know, I, I, the, the idea of show, don't tell, I think does not work in translation. And I was trying to have the reader, ha for example, have the experience that Alex just mentioned. How I wanted the reader to see what it's like when somebody that manipulative trains himself on you and well I mean I, I really tried to show that I was aware all the time that he was trying to manipulate me but I, I think I wasn't sufficiently explicit that's my my guess also in my first draft of the book I explained everything that he was convicted of and the editor said everybody knows that he's a Hitler. You don't need to say that. It's obvious. And of course, I deeply regretted that I didn't spell that out, that I didn't have that opening paragraph that explained all that he'd been convicted of at the outset. In order to talk to him, it was very important to me to hear his side. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I didn't go into the project knowing exactly who he was. And, you know, as I said to one of the Bosnian Muslims that I tried to talk to afterwards, 
I thought I was interviewing a Hitler, and I thought that it was obvious. One of the things that people kept asking me is, would you have interviewed Hitler? And the answer is absolutely yes. And not only that, I I would try to interview him in the same way. I think it's important for us to understand what makes perpetrators like that, leaders, so powerful. You know, we know they've committed terrible crimes. Other people have proven that. And in fact, as I said, the court had many, many millions of dollars and they drew that conclusion. I didn't have many millions of dollars to do my own research. That was not my job. That was the job of the court. My job was to try to understand that person, that individual person, and what motivated him. So when he spoke about fear of Bosnian Muslims, I said that's what he said. And when I thought he was drumming up fear, deliberately increasing people's fear, I also said that. But I reported what he said. And I think that also was deeply offensive. You know, it's interesting. My my colleagues in terrorism studies absolutely could not understand the reaction to the book about carriages because they know I only talk to bad guys. I'm not going to waste my time. It's my... That's my professional interest. I'm not going to waste my time on someone who isn't a perpetrator. It, it's not, this is what I do for a living. I wasn't trying to defend him. I wasn't trying to say that he didn't commit a genocide. That was not my interest or role. So part of your criticism is based on the fact that you interviewed the guy. Alex, I'm curious, because you're also working on understanding perpetrators, would you have ever, if you had the chance, interview Karacic or Hitler for for that matter? That's a a difficult question. I was very intrigued about what he would say, but I'm not sure if I maybe have the courage myself to interview them. On the other hand, I do think... It is important to understand what they say and to ask them all these questions and get into their mindset. And absolutely agree what you said. I think the added value is not to, or, or the aim is not to excuse them, but to understand them. I think that is very important. But I was wondering, and, and now you ask me this question, I start to think about it a bit more. And I want to ask you, Jessica, we also had the, the very thick book by Gita Sereni, who interviewed Albert Speer. And she too was at some point accused of getting too much into the spell of him or believing too much. And in, in that case, it was later revealed that a lot of the things that Albert Speer told her were not true. He said, I could have known but I didn't want to know and I didn't know. And later it was clearly proved that he did know. I agree on the one hand, this research is very important, but there's also an inherent danger in in 
going too much along with it to to get under the spell. And I think in a way, and I'm not sure if you would agree, um, in my book on typology, I describe both Karacic and Albert Speer as careerists. And careerists are also a bit of chameleons who try to tell their story and... Would you agree on that and, and, and the difficulty on, on keeping to try to understand them, but then also giving them maybe too much of a voice of explaining or not? Yes, I, I think one could certainly make the argument that I gave him too much of a voice. And I've also received that criticism from my work on other terrorists. And when my books came out, I was accused of being pro-jihadi, every kind of extremist. I've been uh, accused of being too sympathetic to to any extremist I talk to. I, I don't accept that perspective, but I understand why people might draw that conclusion. In the case of Karadzic, the, the main criticism I received, besides the notion that I denied the genocide, is that I humanized him. And that is, to me, so revealing a criticism. Karadzic is a human being. Hitler was a human being. We want to put people like this outside of humanity because we don't, I think it's that we don't want to face the perpetrator in ourselves. I do believe we all have the capacity to be perpetrators. Most of us, I think, not violent perpetrators, but we all have the capacity to hurt others. I don't want to believe that about myself. I want to believe that I'm a very good person. Uh, it's uncomfortable to recognize that we are all capable, especially in the moment where we feel ourselves, where we take on the mantle of I am victim. That, to me, is a dangerous identity to take on. I don't think it's dangerous to admit that one has been victimized, but I think it's dangerous to develop an identity as a victim. And, and by the way, that is exactly what Karadzic tried to do. He tried to make Bosnian Serbs see themselves primarily as victims. I see this happening in the Middle East right now. I think that, and here I'm really going to get myself in trouble, but both sides have an identity as victim, and they're both want the world to see them as victims. and. I think it's very, very dangerous when that becomes one's principal, the principal way one sees oneself. And I think that's true in, in our personal lives as well as political lives. I always tell my students that no perpetrator sees himself or herself as a perpetrator. And it seems that you're saying the same thing. Would you agree with that, that they always see themselves as being on the good side rather than the bad side? I think they see themselves as sainted often and as victims. In fact, I've 
I'm I'm working on something right now that begins with the sentence every perpetrator I've ever spoken with and there are a lot of them sees himself as a victim and I I believe that to be the case. Karachit as well? Yes. Oh, absolutely. What makes you so sure? Well, and now he sees himself as a victim of the terrible international community that has imprisoned him. But I think he, he, he told himself that Bosnian Serbs were victims. It's almost like he, he told himself that so much that I, I think he, he began to believe his own rhetoric. Um, it's very useful if you're trying to drum up an army to make people think they're acting in defense rather than offense. You said a little bit before something very interesting in that most of the criticism came from the fact that you made Karacic into a human, a human who committed crimes, obviously, uh, committed genocide. That is what a lot of people don't like to hear. Most people, when they see extreme crimes, they want to distance themselves from both the crimes and the perpetrators. And this type of research, because I'm confronted, not in the extent you are, but also with the fact that you try to understand perpetrators, almost seems like excusing them, which is absolutely not the aim. But my question to you also is the fact that he became more human and a human perpetrator, did it also feel as a mirror and as difficult to realize that he was human and that you were confronted maybe also with your own possibilities? Because that is what I also heard from other scholars interviewing perpetrators or trying to understand perpetrators, that they realize the perpetrator is not someone else, but could be me. Is that something that you found hard to deal with as an individual? Yes, to, to some extent. I think it would take very extreme circumstances to bring out the kind of violence that you and I are investigating. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that everyone is capable of organizing physical violence. I, I, I'm not sure I believe that. I, I believe we're, that we're capable of hatred. And at that kind of hatred is very, it's very uncomfortable to see it. And it's very uncomfortable to recognize that capacity within ourselves. I, mean, I, I will say that when I talked with Karadzic, when I talked with someone I refer to as X, who's a fairly famous terrorist in Scandinavia, I felt completely contaminated. And, you know, the, the feeling I wanted to wash myself, um, you know, am I contaminated by that person? Or am I contaminated by the exposure I have to my own capacity for hatred, my own capacity to hate out of fear? I'm not sure, but it feels bad. Absolutely. I agree with you. 
What I was also wondering is the title of your book. You mentioned that you mentioned genocide in the title of your book, but the main title is My War Criminal. And I can imagine that to some people this may feel like a very provocative title, as if you're kind of, it's a personal title and kind of downplaying what Gratis has done. Was this title very intentional? Well, I'll be honest with you, I didn't choose the title. <laughs> I did use the words, my war criminal. When I am studying in, in the text, when I am studying a terrorist, whoever the terrorist is, whether it's a Nazi, a Serb, Muslim Serb terrorist, I actually also interviewed rapists. I, I, it's my, it's a black sense of humor, I, which obviously does not come across in translation, something I hadn't thought about. But I'm making fun of myself when I say my terrorist, which I say regularly. I mean that this is the person that I am studying. And I use the word my terrorist, my, sorry, my war criminal in the text of the book. And my publisher wanted, my publisher wrote the title. My publisher wrote the title. My publisher wrote the back of the book. I had a lot of fights with my publisher. Um, we fought about the title for a long time. And I very foolishly thought, this is not my expertise. My expertise is what I did in between the covers of the book. They are the ones who know about titles. And the same thing applies to the excerpt that appeared in the New York Times. That's actually what got me in trouble. It was before the book came out. People were reacting to the title of an excerpt that was in the New York Times. And honestly, I don't even remember the title, probably because it was such a traumatic moment for me. But I didn't write that title. Nobody who who writes a, an opinion piece or uh, in the newspaper gets to write their own title, at least in the United States. I deeply regret the title. If you had to choose your own title? Any idea what, what you would have made of it? The title I had written was Steer. That was my title. And what I meant by that was my fear sitting in the room and the way he used fear to strengthen his own position and to organize crimes. And by the way, the the purpose of my book by the time it came out was really to talk about Donald Trump. Professor Smullers probably <laughs> noticed that. I wanted to comment on how fear of population shifts could result in not only violence, but it can become an atrocity producing situation. And I, I really was writing for a U.S. audience warning a U.S. audience about what Donald Trump was capable of. If you look back on the interviews and what happened afterwards, were there certain things that you would have done different, knowing everything in hindsight? Oh, there's a lot I would have done differently about that book. You know, I, I would have been much more explicit at the very outset about the crimes that he was convicted of that would appear in the front as it did in my first draft. I would have had a different title. I would have, I would have avoided humor. I think had I realized that a lot of people would be 
reading the book who, who, for whom English wasn't their first language. I was writing for an American audience. I should have thought about that there was another audience. What would you consider the, the main difference as, as a person between the terrorist you interviewed and, and Karacic? Do you say at the core there is the same motivating factor to, to ultimately go to, to violence, although they, they might have used violence in a different way? One was more the architect, the others were maybe the physical perpetrators? Or do you think there's one common thing that makes people commit terrorist acts or instigate a, a, a genocide? Is, is, is there one answer or are there many more answers? I think there are similarities among leaders. I mean, of course, there are many differences as well. But I would say that the most important similarity is the use of fear the actual sensation of fear, but mainly the use of fear to mobilize others. And when it comes to people who, who join terrorist movements or get involved in paramilitaries in a civil war, I think there are many, many different reasons why people do that. But if I, if I try to look at leaders I think they're often very effective at using fear to mobilize. So they aim for power, would that be correct? They, they want to have power over you in the interview, but over people in, in real life. And by doing so, they use fear. So ultimately, it's power and being power hungry? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. They're also power hungry I imagine certainly that's the case for Radovan Karadzic absolutely so to round this conversation off because we're running out of time what would you say is the main thing that drove Karadzic I would say the main thing that drove Karadzic personally is narcissism and I think that narcissism can we see that in people who run NGOs, people who actually want to make the world a better place and that it can be effective in mobilizing people both for good and for evil. And it drove him to mobilize people for evil. Jessica Stern, it has been a very insightful conversation. So thank you very much for joining us. And for everyone who's listening, thank you very much for doing so. And we hope you join us next week again at Let Me for a new podcast. 